This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers will give his State of the State address tonight to outline his vision for Wisconsin over the next year. Evers is expected to focus on bolstering the economic health of the state, lowering taxes for the middle class, and addressing the state's workforce shortage. The speech will begin at 7 this evening, and you can watch it online at wisconsineye.org. Meanwhile, in his response, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss indicated how Republicans plan to implement the 2023 budget. The plan? Start from scratch. In an interview with Wisconsin Eye today, Voss said that he plans to toss out everything except, quote, good ideas from Evers' budget. This comes as both the Democratic governor and the Republican legislative leadership indicated that they wanted to work together during Evers' second term. Evers is expected to release his proposed budget in the coming weeks. It will then head to the Republican-dominated Joint Finance Committee for revisions. A bipartisan group of state lawmakers are reintroducing a bill that could eliminate charging a minor for prostitution by clarifying that children cannot legally consent to sex with an adult, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. Lawmakers say they hope that by codifying that a child under the age of 18 cannot be charged, they will instead be encouraged to come forward to report their abusers. The Safe Harbor Bill was first introduced back in 2017 and again in 2019 and 2021, but has never been approved by the full legislature. State Senator Jesse James, a Republican from Altoona who helped introduce the bill, says not many children are prosecuted for their own abuse in Wisconsin and wants state law to offer clarity on the issue. Workers at Racine's CNH Industrial Plant have agreed to a new contract, ending a nearly nine-month lawn strike. Wisconsin Public Radio reports workers with United Auto Workers Local 180 have been on strike since last May over wages and plant conditions. United Auto Workers represents around 700 employees at the Racine factory, which produces agriculture equipment. Although details of the new contract have not been released, some Racine workers say that it doesn't meet all of their demands. The majority of UAW workers in Racine voted against signing the new contract, but they were outvoted by UAW workers in Iowa who were also on strike. That comes after CNH threatened to permanently replace striking workers and declining union membership in Wisconsin. The contract was officially approved last Saturday after mediation by U.S. Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh. A proposed housing development on Madison's east side will have an easier time getting approved after submitting proposed building plans before the property was approved to be labeled a historic landmark. The filing house near Tenney Park was first built in 1950 as the home of the Credit Union National Association and was dedicated by then-President Harry Truman. Back in October, developer Vermilion Development first submitted plans to build over 300 housing units on the site after demolishing the building. Earlier this month, the city's Landmarks Commission recommended that the city designate the property a historic landmark, forcing the developer to not demolish the building and instead incorporate it into its design. But that landmark designation doesn't go into effect until the full city council approves the plan, which is scheduled for consideration in February. Because the developer was able to submit plans before the building was officially designated as a landmark, the city's plan commission will consider the project under the regulations currently in place, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. And now on to today's top stories. Bones are an important tool to help biologists, archaeologists, and other researchers understand the world around us. 
The UW Zoological Museum has a massive collection of animal bones, hides, and other research materials used by both UW-Madison and other researchers across the world. WRT producer Nate Buggyhout went on tour of the museum earlier today to see why the university collects so many different animal specimens and how they're processed to be used in the classroom. In an unassuming building off of West Johnson Street sits the remains of around 750,000 animal specimens for scientific research in the UW Zoological Museum. One of five museum collections on the UW-Madison campus, the collection provides hands-on research material for universities across the country. While, yes, it is considered a museum, it isn't open to the public. Instead, the rooms are filled with bones, animal skins, and stuffed mounts sitting in highly organized cabinets. Laura Monahan is the associate director and curator of the Zoological Museum. She showed me around their large collection earlier today. And we take specimens in here from graduate student and faculty research. We also take specimens from um, some rehabilitation centers around the state, wildlife rehabilitation centers. And then we do get some animals from zoos and other captive facilities. All the specimens at the museum were donated for the express purpose of research. And the Zoological Museum gathers the animals from roadkill, hunting accidents, or zoo animals that die of natural causes. No animals are killed for specimens here. But what exactly do they do with the massive collection of bones and skins? Some stay right on campus, where biology, archaeology, and other types of students or researchers can study them to learn the ins and outs of most any living animal. The museum also connects with research organizations across the world, and if they have something in their collection that someone needs, they can ship it off to wherever it is needed on loan. The collection includes almost any animal you can imagine, from mammals and reptiles to fish and invertebrates. They even have some extinct animals, such as carrier pigeons, which went extinct back in 1914. That's because, Monahan says, the museum is as old as the university system itself. This museum and the other institutions, other natural history collections on campus were actually initiated at the very first Board of Regents meeting in the uh, 1840s. So before the university was really a university, the regents met and they decided to make this university and they decided to start collecting for a natural history cabinet, which is what museums were at the time. And so they hired some folks to start collecting and as buildings were built up, up around campus, the collections settled in Science Hall. The museum stayed in Science Hall for just a couple decades in the 1800s. In 1884, the building burned down, taking the entire natural history cabinet with it. So, assistant curator Edward Burge had to start the collection from scratch. Burge was a faculty member in the biology department and he was curator of the museum cabinet at the time. So he started purchasing things to replace what was lost in the fire. You can't really replace something that's lost, but he needed to buy new specimens to um, teach and to do research. And so this is actually an original Burge purchase. We're standing in front of a full-size sea turtle skeleton, modeled to show exactly what the turtle looks like in life. Birch purchased the sea turtle in the 1880s, and it is still used to teach students the difference between sea turtles and tortoises today. In case you were wondering, tortoises have a shell that wraps all the way around their entire body, while turtles have a small gap between their top and bottom shell, although the two are similar in size. We began our tour in the bone collection room. Here, rows and rows of shelves were lined with small shoebox-like boxes that contained an entire animal. Well, all the bones of an animal, at least. 
Each box is meticulously cataloged with the common and scientific names, sex, location, and serial number for each individual animal. This way, if someone requests a specific bone for a specific animal, someone with the museum can immediately find the exact part they're looking for. And this is actually a really good exercise for students who are interested in anatomy or comparative anatomy because they're handling every, every part of the skeleton of this individual. And uh, for us, it makes the collection much more useful. So if someone, let's say, wants to do a study on the humerus of the gray wolf, we can pull all of them out of every single box and then get them back into the right boxes. Even the individual bones themselves are recorded, with each one given a catalog number written in tiny letters. Unlike the sea turtle we looked at before, most of their collection is not modeled in any particular way and sits loose in boxes. That's because while the fully articulated skeletons are much more interesting to look at, it's easier to study the individual bones, which is their purpose at the UW Zoological Museum. For example, Monahan showed me the bones of two birds of the same genus, but different species. Animals. This is a cormorant, so these are brown birds they often live near the water they fly and so this is the this is the sternum of the bird and it has this big keel to support strong muscles to fly this is kind of basic mm -hmm. in the galapagos islands there exists the flightless cormorant so these birds no longer fly to get their food they actually dive to get their food and so if you look at this individual i'll show you this element and then i'll show you the rest of the, the skeleton but if you look at this element, the birds look relatively similar, mm -hmm. um, but you can see how different they really are. When you actually look at the rest of the skeleton, you can see that the flighted bird is light and airy and much more gracile, where this bird is much stockier and heavier, mm -hmm. which makes sense. This one has to get up in the air and this one needs to dive down in the water to get its food. So it's very interesting to look at specimens, um, even though they are the same genus, they're a different species, and, and see how different they really are. The collection doesn't just contain bones, but animal skins as well. The skins have all of their internal organs removed, along with most of the bones, and are stuffed with cotton to make them easier to handle. The skins are, like the bones, usually not modeled in any way, like a taxidermy you might see in other museums. They're kept in large, climate-controlled cabinets because they're more susceptible to deterioration. It's imperative that the skins are in these um, cabinets because these cabinets create a microenvironment, and so even if there are temperature and relative humidity fluctuations in this space, which there are, if we were to monitor the inside, you know, put even monitors back-to-back, one in, inside the case and one outside the case, you would see that those fluctuations happen, but they're much less significant, which is important because it's the fluctuations that are really damaging. These are organic specimens, and so the skins are going to expand and contract as the temperature and relative humidity change, um, and that, that will cause them to crack over time. The final type of specimen they hold at the museum is fluid specimens, the type you'd see sitting and preserving fluid in a science classroom. These are kept in the basement where shelves and shelves of fish, invertebrates, rodents, and anything else that can fit in a jar sit ready for study. But how do these specimens go from fully sized animals to separate and cleaned skins and bones? The answer isn't pretty. They start in a preparation room where they skin and deflesh the specimens. Um, in here we have two walk-in freezers. This is actually a walk-in cooler freezer. That's a walk-in freezer. And we freeze all of our specimens when they come in. Okay. And then, um, as I said, we skin and deflesh them here. And that happens um, on the bench right in front of us. Mm -hmm. um, these are specimens that have been defleshed and will go up to our flesh-eating beetle colony mm -hmm. after they've dried. Mm -hmm. Yes, you heard that correctly. 
There are a few ways to remove the small remaining bits of flesh from a bone, but the easiest and cleanest way is Dermistid Beetle Colony. Kept in a dark basement a few blocks away, the bones are placed in the beetle enclosure for several days. Amid the loud hums of the heater and humidifier, needed in order to create the perfect environment for happy beetles, thousands of beetles in several encounters crawl over what was once a goose or a large bull or a deer. That one's nearly done. It's got a little cartilage on it. This one's probably close to done too. So you can see the beetles. These are adult beetles. And then the wormy, hairy looking ones are the larvae. So you can see there's teeny tiny larvae getting bigger, getting bigger, and then these are adults. They do their eating at the larval stage. As adults, they are essentially retired and um, they are uh, laying eggs. Okay. Museum workers have to be extra careful around the beetles because if they were to get to their finished, completed specimens, they could easily eat them. That's also why the skins are kept in special cabinets and why the beetle colony is kept several blocks away. Nobody said making specimens for scientific research was pretty. The museum isn't typically open for public tours. Monahan says that that's because they just don't have the staff. Currently, the museum is staffed by two full-time employees. Even so, Monahan says that the museum is an important research and educational resource. That's why, when she first began working for the museum 17 years ago, she began to develop ways for students to experience the collection for themselves. Because we have all these natural history collections, and I never knew they existed as an undergrad. And so I designed a course that I would have loved, that I would have wanted to take. And so um, I just taught it, I think, for the 15th year this year. And so it allows students to, for two credits, they participate in the class, and then we visit all the natural history collections on campus. We also visit the Arboretum and talk about living collections. And then the students have the option for an additional credit to intern at one of the institutions, which supports what they're learning in the class. Then they're doing hands-on work in a collection and they're learning what collections are all about. So that has been a good opportunity for me to share with people why museums are really great. You can learn more about the UW Zoological Museum online at the UW-Madison website. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. District 10 is located on the southwest side of Madison and includes areas around the Beltline by Midvale Boulevard. In this year's spring primary election, three candidates for Alder are fighting to represent this district on the city council. Diego Colorado is one of those candidates and spoke with WORT producer Nate Wegehout last week about why he decided to run. The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 10 on the southwest side of Madison, containing the area around the Beltline on Midvale Boulevard and the Arbor Hills neighborhood. Uh, One of the three candidates running in that district's primary is Diego Colorado, who joins me now by phone. Diego, thank you so much for for talking with me today. Yeah, no, I'm just uh, thank you, Nate, for having me on today. So just to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Sure. So um, as you stated, my name is Diego Colorado. I actually immigrated uh, to the United States when I was about seven years old. I grew up primarily in Delavan, uh, Wisconsin, and Williams Bay, Wisconsin, kind of where I call home and my folks are. And then I moved to Madison about five years ago, you know, had a little bit time to explore and then the pandemic kind of hit. So I've been kind of, I've been uh, just kind of re-exploring Madison, if you will, and just excited for this election. 
And what do you do professionally? At the moment, I actually work at Conscious Carnivore over by uh, Wood Hills. Uh, so I'm a butcher by trade at the moment with a background uh, in IT. And now why are you running for Alder of District 10? Uh, yeah, I, um, I'm running uh, because I'd like to be the complete voice for the whole community. I want to be there, hear people out, hear what their issues are, and be the person that tries to uh, help them with those issues, whatever they may be. I also feel like the more people run for any political office, the more options that people have uh, as well to elect who they think will better represent them. And have you ever held any elected office previously? You know, I have not elect, uh, been in an elected office before, as I kind of talked about a little bit. I used to work in IT. I worked IT with uh, Walworth County. So I've worked with some elected officials, uh, but I have personally myself never held office. And just sticking with you for a little while longer, what do you do in your spare time? So yeah, in my spare time, I uh, like to read. Just finished a book called Class Struggle Unionism by Joe Burns. I also am a avid gamer, tabletop gaming, so D&D, things like that, and, you know, just video games as well. And then I also love to cook, which works with my whole being a butcher at the moment. And now turning our eyes onto Madison now, what are the most pressing issues facing Madison that you would want to address? So as you've probably heard before, there's a lot of talk about affordable and accessible housing that is something I would definitely love to address. I also, the CARES program, um, I don't know if you, uh, I would love to expand that to the whole city. That's something I'm kind of passionate about as well. So those would be two of the main things I think, not just my district, but all districts could benefit from. And now you mentioned housing, so let's get into uh, some specific issues. Uh, starting off with housing, what sort of what sort of key initiatives would you like to see to try and bring more affordable housing here to Madison? I mean, obviously, affordability has to be a big key of that. Accessibility. Um, I would love to see if there's maybe create some uh, incentives for either local Madison developers and or Wisconsin developers so that they can get in before maybe some other companies from other places that don't know what Wisconsinites need or want as much as actually people from Madison and or Wisconsin. And now let's turn our eyes on to transit. As we know, bus rapid transit uh, set to be coming to Madison here uh, pretty soon here. So how do you feel about that? Actually, big proponent of the rapid bus transit. Um, I would like to see it expand more all over the city, and I know that's kind of something that's in the works. But, yeah, I am definitely for that, um, and I just want to see it expanded throughout the whole city so that everyone in every district can uh, use and it's accessible for them as well. Now, the final issue I sort of want to take a eye at here is not really is more sort of dealt with on the county level, but certainly has some pretty big implications on Madison as a whole. And that's the F-35 fighter jets that are going to be coming to Madison this spring. Uh, how do you feel about those jets? I'm not a big fan of the military uh, industrial complex, Nate. So I a hard no on that, um, not only because of that, but also some other things that you probably heard, sound pollution, actual environmental pollution. There's enough airspace around us, I think, 
or I feel anyways, that uh, they could go there and it wouldn't cause any problems for us and they would satisfy the needs of, you know, the military as well. Now I want to take a look at your specific district there. District 10, what are a few key issues facing your specific district? What have you heard from potential constituents? Super funny that you actually asked that because I just had a meeting with a couple of them. Something that they brought up a lot was uh, historical preservation. So I want to dig deeper into that with them and, you know, specifically note um, they would like to see a little bit more of that. And then as well as just accessibility to public services like the bus. I had to actually take the bus a couple months back because my car broke down. The bus, again, I know I've already touched on this, but the bus route that I had to take, there was one bus every hour. So, you know, increasing that accessibility to public services is definitely on top of the list. Now, Diego, sometimes issues get complicated at the city council. Now, let's say that you have an issue where some of your constituents want to see some policy happen and other constituents in your district want to see the opposite happen. How would you handle that sort of situation? Uh, Yeah, uh, I would first I'd start, you know, by meeting with each group in the community, you know, uh, hear both sides, take into account also possible future implications of the decision that I make. And then I would go with the morally correct decision. Now, Diego, we're sort of coming up against the clock here. Do you have just any final thoughts that you would like to share with us here? Yeah. You know, I'm very new to Madison, specifically Madison politics. Um, I know I'm running against some very prominent members. Um, of the community and people who have been on council before. Honestly, I'm just excited to learn and work with the community and go vote for the person that you believe uh, represents you the best for your district. I've been talking with Diego Colorado, one of the three candidates running for the Alder seat in District 10 in the spring primary election. That primary election takes place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Uh, Diego, thank you so much for talking with me today. No, I appreciate everything here, Nate. time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Today was the first day of classes in the new spring semester at UW-Madison and with classes comes the return of the Cardinal Call to share what's going on on campus. This week, producer Madeline Alfonso talks with Daily Cardinal Editor-in-Chief Sofia Vento and Managing Editor Jessica Sonkin to look at what the paper has in store this semester. Welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Madeline Afonso. Today is the first day of spring semester and the Cardinal is starting up regular coverage again. I'm joined today by our editor-in-chief Sophia Vento and managing editor Jessica Sonkin to preview the upcoming semester. Welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. 
What are some coverage topics you're hoping the Cardinal will prioritize this semester? Yeah, so there's definitely quite a few that we expect to carry over that we had covered uh, this past fall. Um, examples include um, housing in Madison, specifically apartments and leasing for students. We saw pretty tremendous rent increases um, around the campus community, and we definitely expect there to be some conversations about that, whether that be through city coverage or campus um, concerns just sort of about the accessibility of affordable housing on campus. Additionally, um, last semester we saw quite a few uh, conversations on campus and across the community about free speech, whether that be with um, guest speakers on campus and different protests. So we definitely expect that to be something that uh, both uh, the campus community and um, administrators uh, um, will be focusing on throughout the semester. As for new topics, we're definitely looking forward to covering the new legislative session and other issues that are coming to the forefront of state policy and state politics. And additionally, we're just really excited to see what our short shift desks do. There are so many great stories that have local angles, whether that be arts and concerts in Madison or scientific developments um, at the university or across the state. So we're definitely excited to get back to covering some of the issues that our um, readers care about. Yeah, and on that note, we're looking forward to bringing you, as always, a diverse range of coverage spanning across breaking news and evergreen content. We're looking to add some more investigations and feature work to our portfolio, and of course, making sure we continue with live updates pending breaking news. The National Women's March was just here in Madison two days ago. Can you explain how the Cardinal plans to follow the topic of abortion, especially during the state's Supreme Court elections. Yes. So that's definitely something our state team will be focusing on surely throughout the rest of the semester, um, as well as our city team, assuming, as I'm sure there will probably be developments, whether that be protests or demonstrations about abortion access and abortion rights across the state. But um, as I mentioned previously, we have a great state news team that is really committed to covering the legislative session as well as Supreme Court decisions. So we will definitely continue to have that breaking news coverage and following those elections and races to a T. But additionally, I think our team is really looking at covering the issue from broader a broader scale, whether that be through future work or more investigative pieces. So it's definitely something that uh, here at the Cardinal we're continuing to think about as we know our readers care about it. There's debate around the future of certain student organization houses as the construction of a new campus humanities building is planned. Can you talk more about this and anything you're expecting to see? Yeah, so I mean, I this is a really big conversation when we're talking about the campus master plan and constructions on campus and that's always something our campus and college news team has been focusing on might that be just from more like of a technical scale and the you know fiscal ideas about where this money is going from the state for these buildings but obviously there's that community piece which is important with the construction of levy hall um although there's some disputes from the university about exactly what's happening and frankly I don't always understand what's going on either because it seems like no one can really come to a decision on what exactly is happening to these um, cultural spaces. But what's clear is that these communities feel that they are getting displaced and they feel that they are not being treated necessarily with respect or the consideration from the university that they would like to see. And it is important to have those conversations and highlight those voices as this um, issue continues to develop. So it's definitely something we're going to keep an eye on and we have been digging into just to make sure we're getting everything right and making sure that our readers have all the accurate information. But that campus master plan is definitely something that has always been at the forefront of our minds and we're definitely looking to continue that scope of coverage. 
Regarding the Cardinals operations, is there anything new you tried last semester that went well and you're hoping to continue? Yeah, so recently we've been placing this huge emphasis on accessibility of our content. We're living in an age where digital media rules and we want to make sure that anyone who wants access to our content and coverage is able to get that access. That being said, we are placing a huge emphasis on live updates for breaking news. We have live update pages available on our website as well as on social media, specifically Twitter. And we're making sure that we're bringing you a lot of evergreen, more long-term content in our physical papers, seeing as though we're only printing twice a month, which is a push up from what we did during the pandemic, well, the vast majority of the pandemic. But we want to make sure that people who seek those physical copies are still able to get those in stands as well. We're also doing a push on social media because we recently started a TikTok account, which we're very excited about. Our social media team has been working with that. We're also just looking to continue to diversify coverage as we always do. We want to make sure that we are speaking for people who might not otherwise have this platform to speak for themselves in this campus community. And we want to make sure that we're uncovering angles that might not be reported on through other outlets. Is there anything you're specifically excited about for this semester, either at the Cardinal or otherwise? I mean, we're definitely excited to sort of dive back into it to get um, back with consistent coverage. You know, today's Tuesday, so we will be ramping up coverage starting Wednesday with daily coverage once again. We're also really excited about um, our semesterly action project. Um, although we're not going to reveal exactly what that's about yet, we are starting to brainstorm ideas and getting um, and we'll begin those conversations with our team about some really important issues affecting the campus community and giving our um, writers a chance to really dive into those. So we're definitely excited for that, but yeah. The fall semester is typically very fast paced, yeah. seeing as though there are just a lot of new events upon the start of the academic year. And we also have a huge turnover with editors at the start of the fall semester, because that's typically when new editors start in but we are very lucky to have some extremely dedicated new editors joining us this semester, including your producer, who is our new campus news editor. And we are so excited to see what they do with coverage this semester. We're really looking forward to it and just spending time with everyone in the office. It is such a great way to make new friends and hear new perspectives. And we look forward to it every single week. Do either of you have any other thoughts on starting a new semester? No, not really. We're but... ready for it. <laughs> yes. Thank We're ready. you both so much. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you for having you. us We're this week. In other campus news, UW-Madison hosted its annual MLK Symposium on Monday evening, featuring former NAACP president and investigative journalist Benjamin Jealous. Jealous spoke on the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King and reflected on his own work as a civil rights leader. Wisconsin lawmakers finalized a measure on Thursday asking spring election voters to consider an amendment that would give judges more leeway when setting cash bail. The state assembly approved the measure with 10 Democrats joining Republicans to place the constitutional amendment on the spring ballot. Make sure to check out the Cardinals Spring Welcome Back issue, which will hit the stands on January 26th. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon.
Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Spinal injuries are unfortunately common in birds and can cause major health challenges for wildlife rehab centers trying to nurse them back to health. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg shares the story of an eagle that experienced just that type of serious injury and what rehabilitators did to nurse this bird back to health. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about spinal trauma in birds. And I thought this was a very appropriate topic because we see so many different spinal injuries in our patients, especially raptors and songbirds, uh, that it felt like a really good you know, type of segment to cover just to talk about how it's a complication in rehabilitation, but also, you know, highlighting some of the successes because right now we have a bald eagle in our care that had just came in a couple of days ago from the Baraboo area. And we had uh, just a really great partnership with one of the local wardens up in Sauk County who drove all the way to Madison to bring us this bird. It is a beautiful adult eagle with a federal band on it. And the coolest part about this case is that the bird, uh, although it was unable to stand when it got into our wildlife center on admission, it was federally banded and we know that it was banded when it was still a nestling. So this bird has had a federal band on for a very long time and the report came back to say that it is officially 17 years old and that's a pretty great lifespan for a beautiful adult eagle. So, you know, I was there on exam day and seeing this beautiful bird getting it out into a cage so that it could rest after transport and figure out, you know, what's wrong with this bird. It was very sad to see at first that the bird was unable to do really anything except sit up on its hawks. Now the hawks are kind of the, what you call the ankle joint in a bird. Birds are always talked about having like a backwards facing knee. So to give you a little bit of an anatomy lesson, we have the feet and the feet uh, are linked to what is called the tarsometatarsus, which is kind of like the foot basically of the bird. And then you get to the hawk, which is the ankle, and then above that, the tibia tarsus, which then links to the knee and then links to the femur. So this bird was clenching both of its feet and it was able to kind of just like sit up on its hocks, but it was damaging its tail feathers and it really couldn't move very much. So spinal trauma usually is a type of situation that we commonly see this symptom occur in. So let's say a bird, for example, like this eagle, uh, was hit by a car. You know, they have a very long spine, a little bit different than humans, but sometimes with an impact trauma, the spine can be compressed, there can be pressure on nerves, there can be damage, usually very commonly luxations of the spine. Sometimes it's gonna be something like a spinal cord injury. And usually the clinical signs of spinal trauma are acute, meaning like it happens very quickly and rapidly, and it might progress actually to become something like an unstable fracture. That luxation can happen where the luxation means that like it's kind of dislocated, like out of place. 
So those are situations that are all very, very serious. If you kind of think of it in human terms, like yourself, if you have a spinal injury, you could be paralyzed. This bird luckily only had paresis, which would be like a partial paralysis of the the spine. And the reason that we figured that out, or at least surmised that that was the situation, is because it could move its feet just a little bit, and it had something called deep pain. So To talk about this a little more extensively, we have to understand the avian nervous system. So if you you don't know, we have the central nervous system, and that's the brain and the spinal cord. And we also have the peripheral nervous system, which is going to be the nerves that are stemming from the central nervous system to other extremities and parts of the body. So in our case, we know that because the bird was unable to stand, it was having some issues with the peripheral nerves, right? If it's not able to stand on its feet or stand on its legs. But a lot of times that is actually a result of damage to the central nervous system, like the spine. And so when we're rehabilitators, we have to go through a very structured exam to figure out where is this problem or or issue coming from. And it all comes down to A, the history of the animal. Why did it come in? Uh, Was it observed hit by a car? Did it strike a window? Because there are some neurological problems that can be caused by things other than trauma. So for example, seizures is really difficult for us because it could be ataxia, meaning that they're disoriented or falling off of their perches, or they have some sort of limited motor activity. The you know, seizures could be coming from something like toxicity with heavy metals. So, you know, how do you know that it is going to be physical trauma? Well, the first thing we do is examine that animal and we take an observation of the bird's mental status, the gait, the posture, the behavior. This bird, when we put it in the cage originally, was really bright and reactive to our presence. It was actually a very fractious, very feisty bird, which is great. You know, usually we see that on day one and I say, oh, that's really good. You know, it's not a really dull mental It doesn't look like, you know, this bird isn't aware of its surroundings. The bird was able to sit up. It was feisty. It was strong and it was in great body condition. So that's the first, you know, just observation that we made. And then the physical examination, uh, one of our licensed rehabbers, uh, together with some volunteers, interns, you know, being able to watch this, the evaluation was really palpating the muscles and the hind limb musculature, especially towards the pelvis. So you know, what we're looking for is muscle atrophy. So if the the muscle has been very, very weak and there's not really a lot of musculature in that area, well, that's maybe suggestive that this is a long-term chronic injury. This was not the case in this eagle. So palpating had great musculature and there was no feeling of a fracture, uh, which we call crepitus when it's like a crunching or, you know, something like a grinding, something that you could feel very easily that would suggest that there is something like a popping or something to say that, hey, this bone has fragments, which is a really strange thing to have to feel for, but is also very important as part of our physical exam. But then we test the nerves. So the biggest thing for us is checking spinal reflexes, checking the peripheral nerve reflexes. So what we do is take a a very, you know, small amount of pressure to the toes and we start to kind of pinch the toes and we start to gradually increase the pressure. And what we're looking for is movement. So like you were go to the doctor and you'd get uh, your knee tested for a reflex, right? So they they take that the little triangular tool and they pop your knee and it's if you kick your leg out. It's kind of similar in an, an eagle, except in this case, we're just pinching the toes very lightly and then to a little bit of a deeper pain to see, well, 
does the leg retract? Does the foot retract? Is it reactive? If you had no response whatsoever, you just, you could be squeezing as hard as you possibly could and nothing is reacting in that foot or that leg. That's pretty indicative of a full paralysis of the limb, the spine, and luckily for this bird, it did not have that. As we gradually increase pressure, you could see the bird retract its feet and its legs and say, oh no, stop doing that. And then as we got to harder pressure, the bird was trying to shake its its head cover off. Uh, so obviously we want to keep the bird wrapped and contained and have no visual stimulus. So we actually wrap the bird in a towel or we'll put a, a hood on. And this bird very visibly could feel that the pressure was increasing to the toes. And we call that pain response positive because the nervous system running from the toe up the leg to the spine and then from the spine to the brain is telling the bird, ouch, this hurts. And that's super important for us to test. And that can change over the course of 24 or 48 hours. But that meant that the bird could feel and that maybe the spine was damaged in some way, but it wasn't permanent. And so that's where we called it a paresis. So it's a really interesting thing. Uh, and it could be localized lesions. It could be, you know, you could have a reflex response, but you could not have a pain response because maybe the peripheral nerves work, but none of the information is traveling to the spine and the brain. Also not a good sign. So we were very glad to see that this bird had positive pain response. And in a successful happy thing, today was the first day this bird was standing. And that's incredible. You know, only a couple of days later, after giving pain medications, hopefully to reduce swelling, maybe around the nerves in the spinal cord, around wherever the damage was, if it did get hit by a car, giving it time, cage rest, fluids, everything else that we could possibly do for this bird. It is just a delight to know that, you know, helping that animal through that critical period and giving it what it needs can really result in success. And we're very glad, you know, a big bird like that, it can be touch or go. Sometimes it's actually worse than smaller birds because there's less to work with. But we see so many spinal cases, spinal trauma cases from raptors to songbirds during the year that just, you know, a big, beautiful, majestic eagle that we know has lived 17 years, <laughs> getting to see it stand today was a, a pretty important and happy success story that we look forward to every day in rehabilitation. So as rehabilitators, this is a really cool example of a recovery from spinal trauma. So that's a little bit about the avian anatomy from the feet, the legs, talking a little bit about the central nervous system, the peripheral nerves, talking about how we evaluate spinal trauma and the spinal reflexes and the reactions of birds on a physical exam when they come in with known history of trauma. So we hope you enjoyed this segment today on WORT, and we appreciate your help with finding sick and injured animals out there in the wild. If you ever have one or you find one or have a question, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. Last night on the news, we brought the sound of Sunday's abortion protest in Madison, held on the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade and in protest of Wisconsin's 1849 ban on abortion, which is in effect even as Democrats seek legal paths to challenge its legitimacy. Tonight, we bring you more voices from Sunday's march. WRT reporter Zoe Sullivan spoke with others at Sunday's Day of Action at the Capitol and asked what mobilized them to show up for abortion rights. Here's what they said. My name is Chloe. I have a uterus and um, the thought of not being able to have access to um, 
you know, a safe and legal abortion is a terrifying thought. And I know so many people who have had abortions and if they had not had access to that, their lives would have been changed drastically. And um, I wouldn't be here if someone that I love hadn't had an abortion. So uh, it's something that I care about very deeply. Uh, my mom was 17 or 18. She was uh, graduating from high school. Um, she lived in Virginia at the time and uh, she got pregnant and decided to have an abortion. Um, and she didn't tell her parents. She had her best friend take her and go with her. Um, and she told me that story when I was about 12 or 13. We were talking about reproductive health care and uh, it was really powerful <laughs> like I was she was the first person I had known or had revealed to me that they had had an abortion um, and so it really I had never really thought about it in a in a realistic sense uh, until then and never realized the fact that I wouldn't be here if she hadn't had that abortion and she hadn't you know she would have never met my dad and um, so does this you know does Wisconsin's ban make you think about whether you're going to stay in the state absolutely yeah it has definitely made me question whether or not I want to continue to live here after I graduate I'm Ella, I'm 22, and I'm a recent grad um, looking to go into museum work. Uh, I've grown up in Wisconsin, and I'm back in Wisconsin after college, um, and I think a lot of conversations post-Dobbs have really become more urgent and like immediate for me. I also recently had a pregnancy scare, and that was the first time that I understood the scale of the issue, and also the kind of generational weight that we carry, the reason that, the fact that we're all here because people either had access or didn't have access, mostly a combination of both, um, and the fact that it, we had less than 50 years with this life-changing legislation. Um, so it, it became a really like practically immediate um, struggle for me, and I think it was kind of a coming of age in that sense. What do you think is possible in terms of creating change here, right now? I think maybe the first line of really practical defense is abortion funds, like driving people to Illinois, um, providing the funds to get an abortion. And I also think that there are big legal issues to consider, but volunteer networks mailing pills, I think, is going to become a really big network. And I think that's an important avenue to explore despite the risks. Well, I'm a student at Madison West High School. Um, I think that just showing up here and being a part of any action that you can is, you know, doing your role, at least personally, I think, you know, this is a right that women and people with uteruses should have and yeah speaking out against it is an easy way to so sort of take action also I'm 17 so I can't vote so 
what's that like for you? I mean, what's it like for you, and, and what are the conversations you're having with your classmates yeah. around this? I think, I mean, sometimes it feels kind of like helpless because you don't have much of a voice, and then you're just seeing the world around you kind of changing. I mean, this is going backwards in time from a while ago, so I mean, yeah, I think just discussing with friends, it's just kind of bizarre and very scary, honestly, to see the fate of the future if we don't have change, so. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Thank you to Zoe Sullivan, who recorded the song performed by the Forward Marching Band, playing underneath us right now at Sunday's Abortion Rally. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg and the editorial staff of the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wuggy helped produce this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you keep up to date with podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrico Patio. Good night.